Greetings, everyone. I'm excited to welcome Jason Vigo, CEO and co-founder at Bev's. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Hey, excited to have you here. Let's dive right in. Tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, so I've spent my career more in marketing and communications and company culture building. So not a technologist initially by trade. I worked at a company called Citrix for many years. Before I left, I was the head of global employee communications and engagement. That is a mouthful of a tech company title. But what I was doing was sort of internal project management and strategy across three departments, marketing, business operations, and HR. And then I actually sat on the extended HR leadership team at Citrix. And so I do have a deeper background and focus even at Vevs today. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about it on sort of the people side. And really, I'm more of an internal facing CEO, I think, than an external facing. Uh, I am a second time founder also. So my first company was a vertical software platform. Also, it was a SaaS platform for dog groomers. So trying to take kind of what I'm doing at Bev's today, but to dog groomers that failed, learned a lot in the process. Happy to share those, those horror stories, but overall learned a lot. And now I got my MBA from UCLA Anderson. It was a working MBA. So I did that while mm -hmm. building Bev's and I've been at it at Bev's for now almost five years. Okay. Awesome. Love, love that background. Yeah. Let's before we talk about your current endeavor, yeah, tell us, you know, vertical SaaS is kind of a hot term nowadays. So I'm kind of curious because, yeah, a lot of investors or even, you know, maybe first time, want to be first time founders looking for that vertical, very niche business and seems to be popular today. So when, what time period was that? And what, yeah, what happened with the dog groomer SaaS? Yeah, so I don't even think I knew the term vertical SaaS when I started the dog grooming platform. That was in early 2019, pre-pandemic. I actually think timing, we would be quite effective today. So I think timing was the bigger miss, especially pre-pandemic. SMBs especially were more reluctant to use technology and e-commerce. And so I think timing was really off for the dog grooming platform. Bevs went to market in January 2020. We actually didn't start off as a SaaS platform we started off as a marketplace. And so we went to market in January, 2020 as a convenience store marketplace, not the worst business to start in a global pandemic. People were ordering this kind of stuff online all the time. And we, we were doing quite well. We, we hit almost a thousand e-commerce and delivery orders in summer of 2020. And then the industry changed really fast. And we realized another marketplace wasn't needed. A solution designed specifically for this unique vertical was needed. Mm -hmm. So interestingly, similar to what I was doing with the dog grooming platform, I just didn't know what I was doing yet. With Bevs, we learned it firsthand. We went to market with what I believe was still the right problem. These stores couldn't really manage their inventory and easily sell it online. We gave them the wrong solution. Another marketplace pivoted to the B2B SaaS platform. I think to really answer your question on vertical software is, I think technology has become easier and easier to make and cheaper to make. And I think verticals are now sort of the hot topic because it is time to take that one click down, which is businesses require sort of a unique set of software and services. I think it's a new era of we can't just throw the same enterprise level technology. I'm super vertical specific. We've seen other vertical spaces like accounting software or something like that for accountants. Whereas we're, we're digging into SMBs that do not typically use any technology. But I love vertical software because I think we can take the tools out there, adapt them and make them specifically fit for the unique needs of a very specific customer. And the ROI is just so much more tangible. So that's kind of my, my view. 
Yeah. Was there overlap between the dog grooming business software and then what you're doing Bev's? A little bit. So I, yeah. I was working on the dog grooming platform. I take zero credit for the initial idea of Bev's. How we started was my co-founder has owned and operated convenience stores for now 39 years. I've known him since I've been six years old. Long story, but he was my former basketball coach. So he came to me when I was working on the dog grooming platform, telling me he wanted to build something for convenience stores. Him, his friends, his network, they're either convenience store owners, distributors, or brands, right? Like he lived this space for four decades almost, right? And what he was telling me was grocery platforms didn't really work. The restaurant tech was not a fit for convenience stores. They're too different. He tried the delivery apps and they were not easy to use. And ultimately, it's been this unique space that's quite lucrative, right? 150,000 convenience stores across the US that have been overlooked and tried to bucket into sort of pre-existing grocery or restaurant. I was working on the dog grooming one, but one of the key, I think, gaps for me where if I hit the reset was I would have never done the dog grooming platform without someone who really knew dog grooming or at least knew that customer. What I thought I knew at the time was I am a owner of a dog who gets their dog groomed. So I knew what their customer was like, but I really didn't understand the deep experience. And so either going back in time, I would have gotten a job at a dog groomer and learned this myself to experience it or done way more interviews, I guess, or teamed up with someone who knew it. So when Victor came to me, that's my co-founder, knowing the industry for 40 years, you can't really beat that. And so I had a little overlap, but I, I just really didn't crack the code on the dog grooming platform. I also, I think the second thing I realized I didn't know is speaking of sort of CFO, right? I, I lacked the finance background. So I, I didn't have that background. And that's why I decided to go get my MBA. So they, they kind of all overlapped a little. I was winding down the dog grooming platform, starting to get my MBA, which was the working MBA. So I still had time to work full time. And then I, I teamed up with Victor. He started the original marketplace and I teamed up with him in January, 2020 when it was built. And then we went to market together. So yeah, a, a lot of overlap. At one point I was doing all three, sort of like working at two startups and in school, I was doing all of them very poorly. And then I sort of find, found my focus, luckily. I love it. Already lessons learned here early in the episode. So yeah. So yeah, let's, let's talk about Bev's. Tell us what products and or services does Bev's offer? Yeah. So as I mentioned, we started off as a marketplace. We pivot the business. We learn a lot. So the, the new and improved Bev's, we spent 2021 pivoting, 2022 relaunched. What Bev's is today is a SaaS platform that helps convenience stores stock the products that their customers want and then easily sell those products in store and online. And what that really looks like is we are building API and EDI integrations with the way they buy their inventory from distributors, with the way they sell it in store through a point of sale system and the way they sell online through e-commerce and delivery apps. So really what we're doing is we are facilitating the way they buy and sell it. That is the core product. Really yeah, sort of our, our wedge. Yeah. Oh, no, go ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah, the, the wedge in, right? We didn't just build that all at once. I don't have 500 API integrations, right? The wedge in was we built an inventory management platform with normalized data across name, description, photo, and UPC code for literally anything they would sell in the store. We have 120,000 items in there today. They use that and then they really easily onboarded with and managed their delivery apps. That was sort of the wedge in. And now we're going into these more sophisticated pieces around the buying and selling of inventory. That's the core business today. Okay. And would you say, are there two plays here? One for C-stores, you think traditionally, right? We're, 
it's all physical. You know, we go in, we buy a product, we leave. And so one, helping them stock the right inventory that consumers really want in those C stores. And now also it sounds like then taking them to the e-commerce side so they can sell products online. Yeah, 100%. And that's funny. Yeah. The funny yeah. thing is we, we, the way you said it out loud is exactly what we wanted to do in that order. And then we didn't do it that way after learning again, which was, it made sense to go first, find out and support the way they buy inventory, right? Get the right items in the store first. That'll facilitate their ability to sell in store. And then we do the e-commerce and we do the online. The problem with that was the industry wasn't moving fast enough. The pandemic definitely expedited it, but it wasn't moving fast enough. And so the stores were not getting ROI from buying online, right? And so we, we flipped it on its head and almost went in reverse order. It was, okay, let's just take what you have today, help you sell online, start to boost your revenue in a way you've never been able to do before, and then go backwards with POS integration and getting the right items at the right time. That's going to be a longer journey to getting those right items today. Yeah, we went in reverse, but the way you said it is how I wanted to do it. And I wish yeah. we could have went in a more logical order, but we did not. And on the e-com side, you know, right. We think C stores, right. Go in and buy a soda or Gatorade or whatever it might be. Leave. Is this, you know, and, and you've seen some of these where, I don't know if depending on your location, like Casey's where they just sell a lot of pizza and now they can sell it online. You pick it up in store. So things like that. So food and, and I guess beverage based versus thinking of like, I don't know, you know, a, a widget or something that they're trying to sell online. Yeah. Yeah. So the funny thing is pandemic hit and a lot of these stores purchased these custom branded web solutions, right? So like a, a jojoslicker.com, they have the website, they have the app, and then no one really came and they realized you have to fuel sort of customers to come to your site, do marketing, talk to your customers. And it just wasn't a fit, right? And so what we realized they really needed was a better way to use the pre-existing solutions, DoorDash, Uber, Grubhub, et cetera. That's how we started. Sort of the second feature question is, is another really fascinating one for us. There's this sort of spectrum from like grow or like I almost see it as like a triangle where you have restaurants, you have grocery and you have convenience and they do start to blend, right? So you mentioned Casey, especially so we're in New York right now. We, we hire our first rep in New York like the bodegas are very popular. And and what def, when does the bodega sell enough food, like like hot foods, to where they're now more restaurant, less convenience? I don't have a perfect answer, but today our focus has been if the core business is these primarily non-perishable items, your Gatorades, your sodas, your liquor, beer, wine, your snacks, your chips, that's what we're facilitating because it's so many of those items, right? Like one of our normal stores has five to 10,000 unique SKUs, a tiny corner store that looks like there's no possible way. It's very few of each item, a ton of SKUs. And that's what we're facilitating, but we're coming into some challenges around how do we now enable someone who kind of floats across grocery or floats across bodega restaurant to allow for all of that. But I think the short answer really is using existing channels where people are already spending their time and enabling anyone from a convenience chain to a mom and pop liquor store owner to effectively use those in a profitable way. Okay. Yeah, that's awesome. Because it sounds like the C store business model is changing or evolving right now. Was that fair to say? Oh yeah, hundred percent. The, the, the funny thing is like last and last sort of industry data I've seen in retail tech in general, which is speaking of vertical SaaS, like that could be its own vertical retail tech, but we sort of do the click down into convenience. It, it's around like 15% of items are sold online. 
our swords are just floating in the two to three percent and it's just happening now. So I think we're at this perfect time where, yeah, it is shifting. Five years ago, you were bare. I mean, there was Drizzly. There was a couple apps out there, but pretty much very few people were ordering liquor, beer, wine, snacks, chips from their local convenience store online. Now it's two, three percent. It hasn't hit sort of average market numbers, but I do think in the next five to 10 years, it'll start to catch up. And these convenience stores should have the ability to sort of capitalize on e-commerce like almost any other retail sort of vertical did. Yeah, that's great. And then tell us just see stores in general. So this could be the local gas station, the KC's, but also it sounds like the the mom and pop liquor store. What other type of general categories do we think about when we when you're thinking C stores? Yeah, so I use C store as this sort of overarching category to kind of include all of the above. Then the numbers that I think are really fascinating that uh, most people don't realize because we we drive around and we see we think we see 7-Elevens and Circle K's and and actually the numbers are are, are different, which is 71% of the market is independently operated and small chains. Uh, 60% of that is independent, uh, 60% of the total market, right? So you're going a majority of the market is actually independently operated and small chain convenience stores. So that's really been our focus, right? Talking about the ICP. I've had conversations with the the middle upper markets. We've talked to 7-Eleven, we've talked to Chevron and the solution still works for them. But today we said the the even more overlooked category within convenience has been everyone skipped over the independently operated and small chain. And they're the ones that make up the majority. When you get a majority of those, we actually have more market power. And so that's actually who we're targeting, uh, not the chains today and primarily okay. the independents, the mom and pops. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I love that. So what, so you've been working on this for several years. What, what year did you found Bev's? Yep. So we technically incorporated in 2019, right? That's Victor started this, started to figure out what does it look like? What is the marketplace? We, we went to market the first week of January, 2020. That's when we consider sort of the founding day when we actually launched. Like I said, we did pivot. So we went to market to 2021 to, to hit the reset button. And then in spring of 2022, last year, we went to market with the B2B SaaS platform. Started off as a free pilot. And by Q4 of 2022, we were you know, starting to get recurring SaaS revenue, figured out we were onto something, went, raised the seed round, and sort of now we're, we're just trying to add every liquor and convenience store across the nation, starting with the mom and pop. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so transition there. And t- what about your founder transition. I was looking at LinkedIn and it looked like you had started maybe just as an employee or, or head of and then transitioned to co-founder. So tell us how that worked. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, like I said, Victor came to me in 2019. I wasn't ready to give up the dog grooming platform. I didn't even live locally in Los Angeles yet, though you could start a company for sure completely remotely. I do think it's helpful for at least like the first couple of founders to be in the same place. And I lived in Seattle at the time. I was moving back to come to UCLA. And so how it started was really Victor launches this company. We go to market as the marketplace and I join him. I was part-time because I still, I was winding down the dog grooming. I still had my full-time job at Citrix. And then I was starting my MBA. And so I'm like, let me join you. I want to take what I'm learning at UCLA. I want to take what I learned in my dog grooming platform. And let me help you out. So frankly, the intention wasn't to actually become the co-founder or to become the CEO in the early days. It was, I just want to help this market that I think has been overlooked with a co-founder that I trust that knows the market extremely well. 
And then pandemic hit and just life changes completely. And so in the year 2020, it was really more like crappy startup, right? Like CEO didn't mean anything back then. We were all doing everything all the time. So I have that sort of ops title and Victor was really sort of holding the CEO role. We we go into 2021, we realize we have to pivot this thing. We don't exactly know what the B2B platform is going to be, but we're positive that another marketplace is the wrong solution and they needed a better sort of inventory management, e-commerce enablement, B2B solution. I led those efforts as part of the pivot. And then as we sort of went back into market in 2022, we decided I would sort of take over officially as CEO, do the fundraising, recruit the new team, and sort of our roles shifted. Where Victor's really, I think, special at is the industry piece. And so we were doing these really interesting brand partnership and advertising deals. And so he started to focus on that piece, which at the time, right, we were just launching SaaS. I mean, we literally made our first SaaS dollar in October of 2022. So leading into that, Victor was running our advertising and brand partnerships, which were a majority of our revenue, allowed us to ramp up SaaS at the right pace. And so that's kind of our our journey. It was not your normal one, but I think where we successfully did it was there, we removed the ego, we sort of used our skills in the right ways, and it made sense for me to take over as part of the B2B play, especially given it was my second stab at it. So hopefully I, I learned a couple of things and hopefully yeah. the MBA helped me at least have some finance and ops skill sets. I, I like Yeah, that. definitely. Definitely. And so are you the company based in LA then? Correct. Yeah. So yeah. company based okay. in LA, most of the leadership team is in LA, but as a company that sells to independently operate in small chain convenience stores, we've been quite active at hiring the rest of the team throughout mm-hmm. the U.S. Okay. And, and what's your current team size? Yep. So we're about 30 people now. A majority is made up of software development and sales. Sales being spread throughout the U.S. We're in multiple U.S. states today. And we build our software in the Philippines. All full-time employees, but based in the Philippines. Okay. And yeah, we'll talk about fundraising in a second, but tell us a little bit about your go-to-market motion because you know, like you mentioned, 150,000 C-stores across the U.S. You kind of know like, right, all these physical locations. So how are you prospecting? How are you reaching out to all these C-stores to land them as customer? Yeah, so we've tested a lot of different things. Like I said, I did have a little bit of a marketing background that didn't work super effectively in acquiring these convenience stores. So today we, we bring on stores really in two ways. One is direct sales. That is the core way we acquire stores. I call it inside sales driven. So we are making calls. We are closing deals over the phone where we can, but then we close most of our deals through field sales. So we will set up appointments, go visit these stores, or just go in the field and go to these stores. Every time we someone's in the field, they find new stores that they didn't know about in that area, and then we're closing. So the good news is you can find most phone numbers or addresses online. All these stores have either a liquor or a beer and wine license. We have, I think, only a couple stores that don't sell liquor, beer, or wine. The target today, especially with margins, is independently operated and small chain convenience stores that have at least a beer and wine license, if not a liquor license. And that's how we're closing the store. So 84% of our stores uh, come in through direct sales. The next sort of tranche of stores is customer referrals. So about 16% of our stores are coming in through referrals from our own customers still funnel through sales, right? Today, 
We are not getting convenience stores who go to the website, sign up. It is self-serve. Hypothetically, you're a convenience store. You want to sign up with Beth. You could do this all on your own without talking to us, but almost no store is ready to just commit to that. So everything runs through sales. Where we are now starting to improve upon is we are putting a lot of pressure on the sales force to do everything, right? Lead generation, sales development, and closing. And so we are working on efforts to do a little bit better job at the lead generation component to get some leads in and allow our, our sales team to focus a little more time on closing and a little less time on lead gen, but frankly, still early days and we're just hustling in, yeah. in the territories we're at. Yeah, I love that detail. And, and do you have to, when you make these appointments over the phone or the field sales and going into the physical location, do you have to meet with the owner of these stores or the manager? Who are you meeting with? Almost always the owner, yeah. The owner, manager okay. is a good... If you, there's three sort of people you'll typically talk to over the phone or even in person when you're scheduling the actual decision maker meeting, the clerk, which usually can't get us super far. They, they may tell us when an owner or manager is in. Most managers are, are quite knowledgeable what's happening in the store. They understand the products. If they're using e-commerce, they're, they're supportive of it. But the decision maker is absolutely the owner and the independence. And that's who we got to talk to. Okay. Yep. Yep. Got to meet with the top person. So yeah, appreciate that insight. And on the fundraising front, so raise the seed round. Did you say that was three, three, three point three? Correct. Okay. All right. So 3.3 seed round. And then what led to that seed round raised? Was there a trigger, a milestone, something that you saw that said, we're ready to take that next step and, and raise some capital? Yeah, so so I'll start with the one before that. So we did a smaller pre-seed prior to that. So in the summer of 2022, we did the pivot. We landed some key integrations like DoorDash and Uber and Grubhub. We showed that people wanted this solution and we were just turning on SaaS. That gave me just enough to raise a small pre-seed round. That was a $605,000 round. We got some investors early that were ready to make a bet on beds before we really proved out honestly what we were doing, but believed in the vision just to sort of bring this solution to convenience stores and change the way this information flows in the market. And we did the Techstars LA Accelerator. That was part of it. To answer your question, how did we then sort of go into the seed? So then we finished Techstars LA. We've launched the SaaS officially. We're now getting paying SaaS customers. It was into really Q1 of this year that we were showing we can consistently add and retain stores. And so we were in the low hundreds of stores, right? And then we started adding stores fast. And we showed that with a couple salespeople, we can effectively and consistently add and retain the stores. We were having pretty phenomenal numbers. I mean, in the early days, it was crazy high, but we're gonna finish off this year with over 600% annual growth because we showed we can add those stores, keep them, that was the trigger point. Ultimately, investors wanted to see that we could add and retain stores in a cost-efficient way because that was the key, right? Everyone assumed if you're doing direct sales, if you're doing field sales, it's going to be so expensive. And the truth was it, it wasn't any more expensive. It's not maybe less expensive than a lot of these other sort of requirements for paid digital and enterprise. And we were closing deals every single day. That was really the trigger point that got seed investors interested and 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 ultimately, it was, it was the execution every month, right? So it was, they believe it when they see it. Well, we did it in January, then February, then March, then April, then May. And then our current investors from the pre-seed started to come in. We wrapped it all together. And that's really how the seed came along. But it was it's never easy fundraising and running the business. But that's 
that's the job, right? Yeah, two full-time jobs. Okay, love that. Yeah, so you're showing, yeah, I love that. Add and retain those stores, so showing that traction to raise that seed round. And then curious, how many sales reps do you have right now? Yep, so we have eight sales reps right now led by a director of sales. We had 10, so we had a couple sales reps going into the seed. We proved the model, and then we scaled that up to 10, knowing that we would have a little bit of churn. I think that's pretty common, especially how fast we were going. Lost a couple employees, one voluntary, one involuntary, and we have eight solid sales reps today. We do intend to keep scaling that up, but we're starting to implement a few other mechanisms, like I mentioned, better lead generation to sort of fuel the current sales force. We're looking at some channel partnerships, but today eight, eight active sales reps with a awesome director of sales. That's great. And looking back at that latest raise, that latest seed round, any lessons learned in that raise that you'd like to share with other founders? Yeah, uh, I learned so much in the fundraising process. It used to be my by far least favorite part of the job, and it's become something that, I mean, it's important, but I've grown to like it in a weird way. I think once I've sort of found my way and comfortability with investors, it's been something I I actually enjoy talking to smart investors who know a lot. I, I believe or like to believe that I should know more about my business and my space than anyone else. But talking to investors has been actually an enjoyable experience going forward. I think one is it's going to take way longer than anyone ever thinks. Even when I knew it would take way longer, maybe it was 2023 was just a rough time to raise. Like it took almost the whole year, right? I started kind of getting the raise together in January. I started taking investor meetings. Like we didn't officially, officially close till like September, right? And the last check came in literally in October, right? So it's almost the whole year. It doesn't mean you're raising 60 hours a week. So I think one is getting ahead of it. The, the one key one that even that I think helped me the most was I spent the holidays, December of 2021 going into 2022 or, or for both 21 into 2022 and 22 into 2023 doing insane amount of research. So I had every investor that I possibly could ever want to talk to. I found whatever I could find online. And then I even started to look up on LinkedIn, anyone of anyone who worked at that VC firm, who did I know that knew them so I could start getting intros. But I think the pre-work is really critical. I think the time frame takes a long time. And it's like, I was told this too, and it made me so mad in the early days of like, well, you got to get to know that you got to meet them before you're raising. And I'm like, I can't get in front of any investors that way because they don't want to talk to me yet. And so now that I've been in the long game of this, it is so much easier when you've gotten to know investors when you're not necessarily raising. So now that we're looking at the next round, it's a much more personal experience. In the end, we're all people. I'm a person, they're a person. Building the relationship really matters. So I think my, my two recommendations would be a lot of pre-work, a lot of pre-planning for the raise. Dedicate the time because when you stop dedicating the time, you lose momentum uh, and it's hard to catch back up. And I think the third is try and build relationships. I'll, I'll add one last piece was for the pre-seed, I didn't meet any investors in person. We didn't have the budgets to go fly anywhere. So I, there's no chance. At the seed, it was even concerning because I was like, we didn't have a lot of budget because we didn't close the seed round yet. So I didn't want to fly out and to start meeting investors. But toward the end, I met a few in person and closed all of them. And I was like, I don't think it's necessarily like, I'm so great in person but it sort of took our relationship to a more real level where we got to know each other. And I started doing as many in person before I made the decision and before they made the decision. So hopefully that was yeah. helpful, but I could talk yeah. fundraising 
all day. Oh, sure. Yeah, really helpful because we know during the pandemic, deals were closed by investors without even meeting in person, which maybe was like a first deal or didn't happen that often, but now more often. But would you suggest for, say, seed, you know, founders who are in that similar situation, really when you're narrowing it down, go meet those folks in person, even if you have to hop on a plane? Yeah, I would, I would highly recommend that. Yeah. And I think for smaller ones, you don't have to, right? So how my seed came together was I take every first meeting over Zoom, even second, maybe even third meeting. But before I'm making the decision to work with them and before I think they should make the decision to work with me, I do try and get one in-person meeting, especially for a more meaningful check. Whereas there's a couple investors that were writing very small angel checks. And at that point, I felt I didn't have to force an in-person, but I'm I try, I would highly recommend getting those in-person meetings. And I think it helped them make the decision to believe in me and in Bez. And it helped me make the decision to believe in them, right? And they, I'll tell you at the pre-seed round, I didn't have the luxury of being picky at all. It was, and I, I got lucky. I got some really great investors at the pre-seed, some family and friends. At the seed, I, I wouldn't say I, I had an insane level of luxury to be picky, but the further we go, I do want to be at least a little picky because these people are in my life, people I talk to now on a weekly or monthly basis indefinitely, right? Like for however long beds exist. So I recommend the in-person if you can make it happen and you have the budgets, but it's, it's still very doable without it. And you can definitely raise in this day and age fully over Zoom. That's great. I love that. Great lessons learned there. So Jason, at this stage of your business, do you have a favorite number or metric that you're focused on to guide the business currently? Yeah. So we just did a, a fun North Star metric exercise for next year. 2023 was number of customers and then growth rate. Yes, retention mattered because obviously if you lose all of them, it, it doesn't help. But ultimately, our core goal for 2023 was what I said earlier, right? Add and retain stores. We were less focused on product usage and product development. We were doing a lot. We had a lot of backlog. We had to sort of fix a lot of the way the original platform was built. Going into 2024, we've shifted that to GMB. So what we what we really care about, right, is how much volume is happening in the store. That is still totally affected by the number of stores you get and retain, right? Because if I have a million stores versus 100 stores, my GMV is going to be a lot different. But what we're really looking at now is combining the adding and retaining stores with a really great product with features that we get them to use more effectively. What we're finding is they use beds more effectively, then they make less errors, they showcase more products online. The algorithms in these delivery apps have them sort of funnel up and they start making more and more money online. Our customers are a lot happier when they're making more money. Unsurprisingly, we're happier when they're happier. And it's this cycle. And so 2024 is the year of GMB. I have some thoughts on 2025 if you're interested, but it was, that's what we're looking at for 2024. I'm feeling pretty good about it. Oh yeah, that's great. Yeah, before we wrap up here, yeah, tell me, so already thinking two years out, so what's what's 2025? What's, uh, what's top of mind for 2025? Yeah, so going into 2025, I think once we've really nailed acquisition, retention, and GMV, so, you know, like how much these stores are really making for themselves. Going into 2025, I think it's going to be more about data. How do we use data to automate the way these stores run their business, right? It should not be that hard. It is because there's no capturing of what they buy and sell, but it's not that crazy to think, hey, a store that sells Bud Light and never wants to run out of it should not have to 
wait for a rep to come in or pick up the phone to call when they're running low. It should track that stuff for them and automate it. And what we found is it was your original question when we started this conversation, right? Which was the getting the right products in the store at the right time. That's all about sort of the data flow. And once we know what's selling, where's it selling, how is different brand doing compared to another, what's selling with what, that's where I think we start to go more industry open, right? Right now, we're really focused on the convenience store. We sort of take a step back and look at the full industry, which is we're starting to talk to brands where we go, this is how you should sell to which stores at what time and what should be automated to make sure the products are in the right store at the right time, in the right place. That's what we're looking at. So I don't know the exact metric per se, but it will be a more around the automation and the data flow, less around. And, and I'll still be totally looking at acquisition, retention, GMV, but that's where I think 2025 goes. Oh, that's great. That's great. I think the, the C-Store 10 years from now might look a lot differently, especially maybe the back office operations. I interviewed a founder a while ago that focused on fast casual and with imagery, they could see like, when rush hour is coming and, and when they were getting low and, and now we need to start prepping the oh, food. Yeah. So I can't imagine, yeah, for C-Stores that, yeah, there's, there's a lot more to come there. So appreciate that insight. So Jason, yeah. as we wrap up, what's coming up next for Bev's? Yeah, hiring has been a big focus. We, we, we closed the round, we tripled the size of the team uh, really fast. I think for me, I, one, as I mentioned at the beginning, I, I'm more of an internal facing CEO than external. Obviously, there are parameters around that. I still have to raise money, talk to customers, be in the industry. But I really believe uh, right when we closed that round, it was rapidly focused on getting the right people into devs at the right time. We'll make some mistakes because I want to move fast, but get the right people in at the right time. We weren't intending to bring in a director of HR and people. And I met someone that I, I knew was the right fit. She started, it's only been a few weeks, already seeing the impact there. So I think my first one is really make sure we have a, an effective way to bring in the right people. We, we have unique positions at Bez, right? So your typical sales rep, for example, we're not going to the former director of sales at Salesforce, right? It's not a fit for us, right? Like regardless of money, we wouldn't bring that person in. We're, we're hiring these unique skill sets for both customer success, product development, and sales that, that we got to find the right people in the right places. So people is my number one thing now, getting the right people in the right seats, working together effectively. I think the second one is I purposely am hiring some intense personalities and, and, and people who, you know, don't get pushed around and really want to sort of fight for what they believe in. When you have a lot of those, you can have some internal conflict. And it's my job, I think, to, to facilitate that, but in an effective way. So to me, it's bringing in the people, engaging and sort of bringing up and allowing our best people to do great work. Those are kind of my top two. And my third is sort of what we talked about still, which is GMV and growth, right? It is, to me, I think we become really spectacular when we have enough market share in this industry, right? There's a lot of stores we still have to get to. When we have thousands and thousands of stores facilitating the way these stores buy and sell, we start to affect the way these hyper-local economies work, right? Where people are buying and selling goods hyper-locally. That's really where I'm focused. How do we maintain the growth, bring in awesome people, and keep those awesome people? Hopefully, I could do all three next year. 
Yeah, that's great. I love that. So Jason, really appreciate your time sharing your insights today. If listeners would like to learn more about Bevs, where should we send them online? Yep. So you can find the most on devs.com. That's our website. I'm quite active on LinkedIn. So I'm always sharing stuff about Bevs. So if you want to follow me or get to know me, Jason Vigo, and I'm on LinkedIn, there shouldn't be too many people with the same name as me. I think maybe a couple, but you should be able to find it. We're starting to bring back to life some of our other social channels like Instagram, which is devs underscore tech. But for now, website and LinkedIn is where you'll find the most. All right, perfect. Well, if you'd like to learn more about Jason, what they're doing at Bevs, check out bevz.com to learn more or check out Jason on LinkedIn. And again, Jason, really appreciate your time and sharing your insights today. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. It was awesome to get to share. Hopefully it was helpful for your listeners. Yeah, it was great. Thanks.